Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta Delomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Alexander Ross, an adjunct professor in geography at Portland State University. He's here with us today to talk about why geography in the places and spaces the radical right operates matters. Alexander, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Augusta. So let's start off with why is geography important when studying the radical right? Well, geography is important because um, it adds the spatial element to all other forms of study. You can um, combine different uh, aspects of interlinked movements, uh, people, and you can really kind of position them where they exist and um, really get a sense also of some of the localized determinants for uh, the development of certain strains of the radical right. So you can see where are, you know, these groups based from the sort of small scale to the large scale. So you can say, you know, these neighborhoods in, say, Portland, Oregon, where I live, are particularly uh, attractive to right-wing organizers. Whereas, you know, you can also say, uh, in the scope of the United States, the Pacific Northwest is drawing these types of uh, far-right organizations. So by taking the, the spatial approach, you can understand clustering, uh, where it happens, and why it's happening to some degree, with some degree of certainty. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it contextualizes my next question of what kinds of radical right organizations do you map in your research? Are they typically focused more locally, nationally, or even internationally? So I do uh, a little bit of both. I usually take a multi-scalar approach. So I'll look locally to my area in Portland, um, but I'll also kind of zoom out and get a broader look. For example, recently I've been uh, researching the vigilante uh, counter demonstration actions and intimidation, harassment, and violence against uh, recent anti-racist protests throughout the United States. And so doing that, we're able to look into statistical probabilities and uh, correlations between vigilante attacks um, and manifestations. Uh, and local spatial variables, for example, whether or not this state has open carry laws. And I, I take those kinds of approaches on an international scale, looking at voting patterns in particular. So correlations between voting patterns and demographics, uh, including different kinds of religious indicators, uh, human development index indices, and so forth. So I'm tracking the growth of the international far right in terms of populist radical right parties and uh, right wing um, authoritarian conservative regimes around the world, as well as localized manifestations of right wing violence in the United States. And how do you do this in practice? What kinds of cartographic tools do you use in your research? Again, for you know our listeners, they may not be super familiar with what geography as a field is. So what kinds of tools do you use to actually conduct this research? Well, so people have actually gotten mad at me a little bit because I just usually rely on open source tools, which 
can be a little bit rough for the viewer sometimes. <laughs> it's not, you know, as polished as... So when you say an open source tool, what does that mean? So for cartography, for example, I'll use uh, a tool called uh, QGIS, which you can just download off the internet. It's free. Um, if you are really into technology, you can probably um, add some kinds of tools and adjust other kinds of tools um, and join in the forums that are online for people who are trying to, you know, manipulate the software in order to get it to do what they want. Um, and that basically has the same functionality as a highly expensive and, and, and very functional, uh, well-functioning uh, tool like ArcGIS. Um, but you know it's free so it's so it's easier uh so i'll use that for web mapping and that kind of thing and then also there's a there's a whole programming language that is basically built for statistics actually there's a couple uh r and python and so i'll use r in order to create multivariate regressions and spatial regressions and map uh the different you know uh, instances uh, and their correlations to um, different spatial and demographic variables. Um, and that sort of like statistical programming language, you know, again, it's really cool because it can give you, you know, uh, a readout on the confidence that you can have in your conclusions or rather in your hypothesis. Um, but at the same time, again, it's a little bit sort of tough to to read through sometimes because it just kind of it spits out the numbers and and it lets you kind of uh fill in the blanks uh with your writing um but it does it does allow you also to create some really cool maps um uh after you've already done this the the number crunching uh or rather allowed it to do the number crunching for you so um so those are kind of my go-to tools and then when i uh when i can i can use arc to arcgis to do some of the the like finer tuned kind of uh kernel density mappings like a, a heat mapping type of thing um but you could do that on r using r as well so it's kind of a toss up as to whether or not people even need ArcGIS anymore. That's really helpful in thinking about the kinds of statistical backing that you use when you're creating these sophisticated maps. But what does this look like in practice? So as a scholar that's based in Portland who writes about white supremacy in Oregon at large, from your research, what is driving white supremacist activity in the Pacific Northwest? I think a lot of it is historically embedded. And that's another thing about geography is that there is a field called historical geography. And um, I've written in it. I wrote a piece with my friend and co-author Shane Burley about the history of the far right in Oregon, um, particularly looking at the implications and influences of interwar fascism. And, and yeah, I think so much of it has to do with the history of Oregon as a, you know, white, um, it's been called like Oregon was founded as a white utopia, you know, black exclusion, and then um, the uh, Asian exclusion, or Chinese exclusion specifically, as well as the genocide of native peoples out here. Um, also, you know, it being far away from Washington, D.C., it's kind of seen as this, you know, uh, frontier 
almost libertarian type of area anyway. And uh, so much of that, you know, history and tradition of, of vigilantism, of, you know, uh, attempted home rule, of sort of county rights and, and populism um, influence the path that Oregon remains uh, uh, kind of tied to today. And the same is true in Washington and to perhaps a greater extent, Idaho. Um, the whole Pacific Northwest, really. Yeah. And how, what does this phenomenon look like over time? So you have on one hand the transformation in the 1920s with the KKK. And then moving to more contemporarily, we have federal forces in Portland right now. So what does that look like? I guess, you know, the KKK was out here, it was a sort of like, uh, maybe I would say like lower middle class community sort of help organization for white people, you know, um, it wasn't the same extreme violence of the first generation of the Klan in the American South and Appalachia. Um, but it was still uh, incredibly intimidating and and way more influential in terms of political uh, reach. And they effectively dissipated because the Klan itself dissipated because they had serious organizational issues with their leader uh, being implicated in a murder and so on and so forth, a lot of corruption. But at the same time... Um, they had their influence stuck and in the 30s once fascism came around um it sort of manifested a different beast it was a um it was a really a, a, maybe a lot weirder it wasn't so tied to protestantism as it was to like the mythical sort of um british israelism and all of these kinds of weird sects and groups like uh, uh specifically like german expatriates and stuff like that so so fascism in oregon was always weirder and it didn't really stick as well as the clan did but after the war because the United States went to war against the fascists in Italy and Germany, the um, the fascists and the far right in general, especially in Oregon, was really clarified in their objection to the liberal government, the federal government. And that is, especially when civil rights came around, really the turning point where, um, where the far right uh, sort of becomes militiaized. You have the Minutemen running around. You have, after that, Posse Comitatus emerging in the early 70s. And then the militia movement coming out of the woodwork in the, in the early 90s, really. And it was that kind of turning point of World War II that transformed the United States and really sort of distilled a far right that opposed the federal government and sort of saw the Pacific Northwest as as the place to regroup, right, as the readout against um, multicultural liberalism and the sort of um, the breeding ground for uh, white power. And 
uh, and so you, you have in the 80s, you know, uh, this big skinhead movement, uh, fascist skinhead movement in Portland um, going into the 90s. And then you also have these big militias uh, cropping up with these, you know, bizarre ideas that the real Jews are descended from, you know, Anglo-Saxons and uh, people who call themselves Jews are the spawn of Satan and stuff like that. Um, so. So, yeah, I guess to to sort of um, give the 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 blurb or the the one sentence thing, it's like fascism was this weird warped mirror that transformed the far right into a bizarre representation of itself that then became almost hegemonic after and for the reason of the United States going to war against the fascists and thus sort of drawing a line in the sand that they could um, they could use to oppose liberal governance and support a kind of uh, white male sovereignty. No, I think that context is incredibly important. And I wanted to ask, especially considering the influx of federal troops into Portland, on the 18th and 19th of July of 2020, how you think far-right groups are going to respond to the federal government, especially because the federal government with Trump in charge has really played to and used white supremacist and white nationalist language. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the potential overlap and potential conflict between the right wing in Oregon and federal troops in Portland. Well, I think that the Trump administration has managed to do um, some significant um, strategic turns that have opened up a front for the far right against the federal government within the government. Um, Trump kind of running as an outsider candidate, uh, always blaming the deep state for um, his own, you know, mis, uh, uh, mistakes. Um, have has really fostered this notion on the far right that you know their guy is in power and he's using it to sort of liquidate the um, the swamp right he's he's using that power to um, to exterminate his enemies uh, and their enemies within the federal bureaucracies um, you know the liberals and and do nothings or what have you uh, leakers and and journalists and so on. And so, um, so for the far right, they 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 kind of think that Antifa is closer to the federal government than Trump is. Um, they often think that Mayor Ted Wheeler here in Portland is basically Antifa himself. They think that Antifa is being paid by Soros, and that Antifa members are often Democratic Party staffers. Um, they have a whole conspiracy theory around Trump, you know, QAnon, um, which, you know, fosters this sense of, um, of having a revolution against a conservative revolution against the, the liberal deep state. Um, and so the federal, when, when federal troops are sent in, uh, they are sort of supine. They they actually sort of appear to tacitly support the the federal 
uh, intervention here in Portland on the grounds that this is Trump who is opposing local liberal politicians. And of course, this is extremely paradoxical because the nature of the federal system uh, is such that the executive shouldn't have this sort of uh, intervention uh, authority uh, over the heads of local officials without some form of due process. And um, Department of Homeland Security is saying that they will leave if local officials condemn the protest actions and oppose their own citizens. Um, and so, you know, political theater is one term I've heard used by an NLG member um, National Lawyers Guild member about uh, what's going on here in Portland, particularly violent political theater. But, you know, when when it comes to the far right, uh, their whole states' rights, you know, focus of, you know, state and county authority over and against the federal government sort of flies out the window when it's their enemies who are being brutalized and shut down. So a lot of that, you know, also goes into the police, right? The far right has mobilized in support of the police with the Back the Blue rallies and so forth. And in many instances, Back the Blue rallies are sort of fostering these connections between the far right and the police, as we saw recently in New York City, uh, with the with the police effectively, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say leading the Back the Blue march, but certainly uh, pushing back its counter protesters and uh, and I guess chaperoning it. So we see a sort of common authoritarian tactic with Trump of supporting the police rank and file against local officials who might oppose Trump's own policies, which creates a solidarity between the police and the federal uh, forces in opposition to um, to local policymakers who are attempting to sever those ties and to block uh, collaboration between the federal uh, imposition of Border Patrol and U.S. Marshals, specifically in this case. I think that's absolutely critical context that you've provided here, especially when you're talking about this tension between state and local authority and autonomy with right-wing groups in contrast to a federal government that seems to be overtly supporting them. So how then does geography influence coordination between these radical groups? Uh, in what ways has that changed, particularly after 2016? Well, I think that geography, you know, looking on the spatial level, uh, there isn't just a, a sort of... Um, uh, demographic dynamic or regional economic dynamic that influences the development, the growth, the change of uh, localized far-right parties or organizations. But there's also a sort of, um, not just transnational, but um, in, intranational uh, organizing capacity. You often see bikers becoming a uh, kind of like a leading actor in far right protests these days, which is partly because they're so mobile, right? They're not necessarily tied to a specific place. So if there's a, you know, a protest in Bethel, Ohio, you know, you get a bunch of bikers from all over the area converging there. 
And so this is kind of an interesting phenomena, and you see it elsewhere in the world as well. Um, in Ukraine, there's misanthropic division. In Russia, there's the night wolves. There's the soldiers of Odin. You know, there are a lot of interesting uh, far-right biker groups that have emerged over the past. Joey Gibson's Patriot Prayer came out of American Freedom Motorcycle Club. Um, so so I think that's, that's an interesting issue in terms of mobility, the mobility of far-right protests and protesters. And with regards to Trump, I would say not even 2016, but even going back a little bit further to 2015, um, and the years leading up to it. I say 2015 because this was a year that um, there was a conference in Russia called the World National Conservative uh, Movement, um, led by Radina and the uh, Russian Imperial Movement, and they uh, brought far-right groups and parties together in one place and effectively uh, established a, a nexus for coordination and material support. Um, what Trump has done is uh, kind of converted or reconfigured aspects of American uh, foreign policy in order to effectively support the multipolar objectives that has been postulated through these far-right networks that meet at conferences and um, and such gatherings. So, so Trump has effectively been able to sort of shoehorn this kind of maybe a, you could say like para-fascist or authoritarian conservative, or, you know, for Alexander Dugan, he would say populist. Um, Alain de Benoit would call it illiberal populism. But anyway, he has been able to sort of privilege those forces, um, as well as the economic um, and political uh, machinations that uh, that sort of stimulate them. And they themselves are are then able to sort of convert that capital, whether it's political capital or actual capital or uh, social capital, into you know um, their organizing efforts uh, in locally, and so we've seen groups uh, all over the world uh, growing as a result that sort of lie on the authoritarian part of the axis. Some of them are even somewhat left-wing, you know, Duterte and people like that, but um, they're all extremely authoritarian, and that's the sort of, um, you know, um, the, the, the configuration that, that Trump is uh, facilitating. Uh, and that has been also facilitated with um, with Putin's uh, uh, support for the far right. Um, so ah, there was one more thing. Oh yeah. Also, we've seen uh, you know the extreme right members of the extreme right from the U.S. group the base to the Brazilian integralistas actually finding refuge in Russia. So, um, so the scope of, of far-right geographical matters also includes that form of sort of locating sanctuary uh, for uh, violent fascists.
Um, so I guess that would be three things, really. The first is um, is local groups integrating using these kinds of conferences and 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 um, and tactics. Uh, the second would be this so-called geopolitical axis uh, that Trump has helped facilitate, which sort of uh, includes those kinds of far-right actors that, that are involved in the first. And then the third, I suppose, would be a kind of um, uh, transnational uh, solidarity, which pans out to violent fascists finding uh, um, sanctuary in far-right states in a way that I don't think that they had before. Alexander, those are absolutely critical takeaways. And thank you so much for summing up such a complex and disparate topic in three ways that radical right groups are now organizing. So where can people find you on social media? Can they find you on Twitter? Where can we read more about the kinds of projects that you're working on? Sure. Um, Thank you for having me, Augusta. I'm uh, at a Reed Ross on Twitter, and um, I'm working on the geographies section of the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Rights um, uh, website, and uh, I'm working on finishing this book that I've been trying to get out the door for like 10 years now about populism and the sovereignty of the people, um, his- looking historically at the sort of long range uh, development of populism. So so hopefully that will come out uh, by the end of the year. Fantastic. We will all definitely be looking forward to reading that when it comes out. So thank you again, Alexander, for being here. This has been Right Rising, a podcast for the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. See you all next time.